Exodus chapter 27. We've been working our way verse by verse, section by section, through the book of Exodus. In fact, we've been kind of going through the whole Old Testament, and we find ourselves today in Exodus chapter 27. And if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, you've heard me say this disclaimer, but I'll say it again. We've been working through the instructions God gave regarding the tabernacle. And I'm going to read the chapter, and you're going to sit and go, what does this have to do with me? But I want you to stick with me, keep attentive, because God has given this not just for those who were wandering in the wilderness, but the scripture says for our instruction, for those on whom the ends of the ages have come. There is much that God wants us to learn in the tabernacle. And we come now to Exodus chapter 27, and let's look together at the word of God. God's word says, You shall make the altar of Achaia wood five cubits long and five cubits broad. The altar shall be square and its height shall be three cubits. You shall make horns for it on its four corners. Its horns shall be of one piece with it and you shall overlay it with bronze. You shall make pots for it to receive its ashes and shovels and basins and forks and fire pans. You shall make all its utensils of bronze. You shall also make for it a grating, a network of bronze, and on the neck or on the net you shall make four bronze rings at its four corners. And you shall set it under the ledge of the altar so that the net extends halfway down the altar. You shall make poles for the altar, poles of Achaia wood, and overlay them with bronze. And the poles shall be put through the rings so that the poles are on the two sides of the altar when it is carried. You shall make it hollow with boards as it has been shown to you on the mountain, so shall it be made. You shall make the court of the tabernacle. On the south side, the court shall have hangings of fine twined linen, a hundred cubits long for one side. Its 20 pillars and its 20 bases shall be of bronze, but the hooks of the hooks of the pillars and its fillets shall be of silver. And likewise, for its length on the north side, there shall be hangings of a hundred cubits long, its pillars 20 and their bases 20, of bronze, but the hooks of the pillars and their fillets shall be of silver. And for the breadth of the court on the west side, there shall be hangings for 50 cubits with 10 pillars and 10 bases. The breadth of the court on the front side or to the front to the east shall be 50 cubits. The hangings for one side of the gate shall be 15 cubits with their three pillars and three bases. On the other side, the hanging shall be 15 cubits with their three pillars and three bases. For the gate of the court, there shall be a screen 20 cubits long of purple, of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen embroidered with needlework. It shall have four pillars and with them four bases. All the pillars around the court shall be filleted with their silver. Their hooks shall be of silver and their braces of bronze. The length of the court shall be a hundred cubits, the breadth fifty, and the height five cubits, with the hangings of fine twined linen and bases of bronze, all the utensils of the tabernacle for every use, and all its pegs and all the pegs of the court shall be of bronze. You shall command the people of Israel that they bring to you pure beaten olive oil for the light 
that a lamp may regularly be set up to burn in the tent of meeting outside the veil that is, in, that is before the testimony. Aaron and his son shall tend to it from evening to morning before the Lord, and it shall be a statute forever to be observed throughout their generations by the people of Israel. This is the word of God. I don't know about some of y'all, but times have changed. One of the things that makes teaching the tabernacle so difficult is that in our culture today, we really don't have a sense of sacred space. Now, the one thing that might be left is going to a war memorial. That might be the one sense we still have of this otherness looming over us, something so much bigger than ourselves, a level of transcendence. But a few decades ago, every house had sacred space. Let me do this by show of hands. If you grew up in a home where food was not allowed in the living room, put up your hand. Right? And, And how many of you in that living room, they also had furniture that you could only sit on when guests came over for some reason? Right? Now, today, who eats in the living room, right? That sense of sacred space for most of us is sort of gone, right? We have a much more laid-back approach. And friends, when God is wanting to build his portable house, which is the tabernacle, his mobile home, so to speak, he wants there to be a sacred space. It is his place of fellowship, with the people of God. Exodus 25, 8 says it this way, let them make for me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. The the tabernacle was sacred space. It was God's living room. He had certain furniture in there for certain particular reasons, and you better use it for what it's there for. And we've been studying the tabernacle over the last several weeks, and today we come to chapter 27, God's continuing to give Moses instructions about building the tabernacle, the furnishings. And here's the main point for us as we work through chapter 27. Here's the point for us. God desires fellowship with us. That's one of the things we're going to see throughout this chapter, that God desires fellowship with us. Now, fellowship is sort of a churchy word, isn't it? I mean, it's in our church's name, isn't it? But it is sort of a churchy word, because some of us think being in the same room, breathing the same air, is fellowship. We can be on our phones looking down, but we're fellowshipping together, right? But biblically speaking, fellowship is inviting someone in for dinner, for conversation, for closeness. Fellowship is life together. And this is the sort of relationship that God desires to have with us, both for us to have with him and for us to have with one another, fellowship, life together. And all three of the furnishings in the tabernacle that we're going to see this morning teach us about what it means to have fellowship with God. God's inviting us into his house to have life with him. And here's the first thing we see. Each thing we're going to have the the furnishing, and then the lesson that we can draw from it. Here's the first furnishing we see. We see the altar, and the lesson is fellowship through sacrifice. The altar and the lesson is fellowship through sacrifice. Look at verse 1. 
You shall make the altar of Achaia wood, five cubits long and five cubits broad. The altar shall be square, and its height shall be three cubits. He's talking about this bronze altar. And if you remember, a cubit was, from, was supposed to be from the tip of a man's finger down to around his elbow. Again, they didn't have tools, so they would sort of measure like this. That's around 18 inches or so. So this altar is around seven and a half feet each way and about four and a half feet tall. It's portable. Remember, it says, hey, make sure to put the, the little, um, make sure to make sure where they could pick it up, right, and carry it with them on the poles and add the little brackets where they could do that. We even get the instructions around the utensils that they would use on the altar because some of those sacrifices we're going to learn were consumed by the priests. But one thing should stand out. As we've been looking at the tabernacle, everything on the inside was gold, and everything now on the outside is bronze. Everything on the outside of it is covered in bronze, and this has four corners with horns on it. And Exodus chapter 38 is going to call this the altar of the burnt offering. Here's one of the simple reasons I think God didn't want this to be gold. Yes, he teaches a theological lesson that God cares more about the inside than the outside. But also, remember, they were going to put unblemished male bulls there. The priest would lay his hand on their head and he would slaughter them there on the altar and get blood everywhere. You don't want your nice gold walls covered in blood, right? And they would even cut up the bull and burn it there on the altar. But what's the most important lesson to know about the altar is where it is placed. We read over in the book of Leviticus that the burnt offerings were offered at the entrance of the tent of meeting. In other words, the altar stood beside the door to the tabernacle. It's at the entrance to the holy place. The way that you could go through the tent into fellowship with God was to offer sacrifice. Some of you know you work at the school. you got to hit that key card to get in through the door. If you're going into your own house, you better have either the code or you better be able to unlock it with a key. Here, the way into the presence of God was secured through a sacrifice. And I don't think we realize what a massive task that was. This was not an easy thing to do. I want you to imagine this. These people live in the desert. They're a wandering, agrarian society. They, they're bringing all their flocks with them. And yet, anytime they needed to come to the tent of meeting, they had to offer a sacrifice. They had to find the right bull from the flock. They had to pack it up. They had to bring it with them. Coming to the presence of God required a lot of forethought at least a lot more forethought than it does for us today. Because in order to enter, God required a sacrifice. So friends, if you were going to enter into the tabernacle, the question would be, do you have your bull ready? Is it ready to go? But friends, the good news is, as people in the new covenant, our bull has already been sacrificed. All the forethought to have perfect fellowship with God has already been accomplished by our gracious heavenly Father. And rather than only securing one-time access, which is what a bull could do, we have been secured an eternal access to God. Let me show you this 
In Hebrews chapter 9, Hebrews chapter 9 says this, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made of human hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once more for all into the holy place, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Friends, that's a long sentence. That is terrible grammar, but great theology right? He says, Jesus Christ has become the sacrifice and secured what bulls and goats could only symbolize. Jesus gave his life in order to secure eternal access, eternal redemption. He died, yes, on the cross, but he rose again and he ascended into the true most holy place, into heaven itself, and once for all that we might enter in through him. And he brought an actual purification for our guilty conscience that we might no longer offer God dead works. Have you ever had those works where, hey, I'm coming here, but I really know, and I kind of feel bad about it? He says, no, we can come before God and feel joy and life in his presence because Jesus has purified us so that we can serve the living God. And the bronze altar teaches us that in order to have fellowship with God, we need sacrifice. And ultimately, we don't need a sacrifice our hands can offer. God's offered an even greater sacrifice than bulls and goats, the blood of his only son. An altar stood by the door to the tabernacle, the door to the holy place. But God doesn't just give us instructions for building his house. He's not just describing sort of the front porch to the tent, but he also wants to give us instructions for the yard around his house. He turns from the altar to the outer court, and the lesson from the outer court is fellowship with separation. The outer court teaches us fellowship with separation. You'll read in verse 9 to 19, God gives instructions on putting a fence around the outer court. God wants a fenced-in front and backyard. And what's interesting there is he makes the fence out of fine twine linen. In other words, don't think of this like the white picket fence, because friends, remember, they have to carry this thing through the desert. You don't want to carry a white picket fence around, do you? Rather, it has a very thick blanket held up with pillars and bases. He's making a very sophisticated blanket fort here. In fact, here's what we read. Look at verse 18 of chapter 27. The length of the court shall be a hundred cubits, the breadth fifty, and the height five cubits, with hangings of fine twine linen and bases of bronze. In other words, the outer court, their front yard, was about 150 feet long and 75 feet wide, 11,000 square feet of outdoor space. And we read that the fencing was five cubits, or about seven and a half feet tall. Friends, that's a big fence. You're not peeking over 
into what they're doing. And verse 16 tells us that there was only one gate into the fence. There was only one way into the outer court, and you couldn't scale the wall. And the court, the outer court was there for the rest of Israel to come. Remember, up to this point, only the priest could enter the tent into the holy place, and only the high priest could enter into the most holy place. They're like, where's the rest of them? They're out in this outer court, potentially. If they were going to enter in, they could come there. And the rest of the nations, the non-Israelites, were even outside of there. Many of them weren't even allowed into the outer courts. And here we see a level of fellowship with separation. There were three different levels to the tabernacle. There was, again, the most holy place, the holy place, and the outer court. Just as there were three levels when Moses was there on Sinai. Moses was there in the presence of God. He had sort of the 70 elders on the outskirts, and then he had the rest of the nation down on the mountain. And this is meant to teach us something. Because all of the instructions around the tabernacle and even the later temple shout to us that due to sin in the world we live in now, in the present creation, mankind is separated from God, but we're also separated from each other. It's making a declaration that in the world we live in, we not only can't just mosey into the presence of God left to ourselves, but friends, we're divided from one another. There are walls to our worship and there are walls to our fellowship. And there are, there are some of us that the idea of walls that we can't crawl over sort of offend our American sensibilities a little bit. We love building walls to keep others out, but friends, we don't like it when walls are built to keep us out. But the tabernacle shows us that in a fallen world, people are divided due to sin. That in our fallen world, fallen people will influence one another and divide from one another. And in Old Covenant Israel, largely, they were separated from the rest of the nations. None of us could have moseyed in there and been a part of what was going on. Even though God had promised back to Abra all the way back to Abraham that all the nations would be blessed through Israel, they were still a particular people meant to be a light to the nations. This is all meant to show us, friends, what life apart from Jesus is like. We're not just separated from God, but friends, we're separated from one another. The reality of sin keeps us in the outer court, but also keeps us from enjoying life with one another. But Jesus brings a better word. Look over at Ephesians chapter 2. And Ephesians 2 tells us this. For he himself, that being Jesus, is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Here's what he's meaning. He says, Jesus' body was broken that the walls between us might be broken as well. That all his people might enter into the fullness of his presence. There is not a multi-class system in the kingdom of God. 
There's no longer those who can enter in and those who can't. No, all of us can enter into the presence of God and have fellowship with one another. Jesus died in order that we might kill hostility against one another. Think of how he words this, that Jesus died due to hostility in order to kill the hostility we have against one another. This is why the idea of a hateful Christian is an oxymoron. It's a contradiction in terms. And I'm not speaking of somebody receiving what we do as love as really being hate. They did that with Jesus, right? Nor am I talking about the fact that we will all live imperfectly on this side of heaven, but rather believers and as a body we are not meant to be in constant strife and hostility with one another friends we're not meant to have a reputation as a church and there are churches some of you have them coming to your mind right now they just have a reputation i've heard some people say man there'll be a new pastor come to a church in our community and they'll go we'll see if he lasts that's not a good witness to the community it's not a good witness if they join over there and somebody goes, we'll see how that goes, right? Because we're, we're not meant to be people at war with ourself, but rather at war with sin and the kingdom of darkness. And the church, we need to be crucified again with Christ. We need to put to death our own desires because Jesus has come to bring peace between us and God, but also peace one to another. And that's why it is our responsibility as the people of God to deal with conflict and issues that are present among us. Paul says this is why we don't take people to court. If we can just settle it in the right way, he says that in 1 Corinthians 6. This is why we shouldn't just air all of our dirty laundry and conflict with one another on social media and let them be the judge and settle it for us. He says, no, as gospel people, we should let God's word settle the strife among us. We should be people of peace, but are we people of peace? Do you have a beef with your brother or sister in Christ? Then Jesus would say, go to them, have a conversation marked with truth and love. Jesus died in order that we could have tough conversations with one another because the ground is level. And to be ready and willing to forgive and show grace and admit fault. You realize here, nobody's got that fake veneer on. I hope that, that we're not sinners. It's like, shocker. We're going to sin. We're going we're gonna to fall. But friends, we need to be willing to call one another out and forgive one another and hold one another up. Because Jesus has already broken down any division and hostility between us. And if we as his followers, we're now meant to live out of what has already been secured for us. He himself is our peace. Black or white, rich or poor, local or transplant, young or old, whatever might seek to divide us at the cross, the hostility is gone. We keep what is unique about us, the way God has molded us, but he puts us into one body, beautifully diverse and not meant to be divided. Friends, I often ask people, if you want to divide from the church now, what do you think heaven's going to be like? You've got to spend forever with these people, and I'd rather settle it now than at the gates. 
You know what, friends? One of the greatest ways a church can grow and reach its community is to have a church that displays the gospel in its own walls as they spread the gospel outside of its own walls. In the tabernacle, we are taught of separation, this three-tier system, but Jesus has divided the walls. He's torn it down because our Savior has walked into the holy place and he's taken us all by the hand and brought us with him. He has brought peace between us and God and peace between us and one another. In a sense, we are all spiritually now living in the outer courts, waiting for the day when Jesus will fully let us in to the most holy place into heaven itself. But how are we going to get along in our wilderness journey? That's what this text causes us to, con to consider. May we live out all that Jesus has purchased for us. The altar teaches us about fellowship through sacrifice. The outer court, fellowship with separation. And let's look finally at the last two verses at the oil, which teaches us about fellowship without ceasing. The oil fellowship without ceasing. Look at verse 20. Look at verse 20. You shall command the people of Israel that they bring to you pure beaten olive oil for the light that a lamp may regularly be set out to burn. In the tent of meeting outside the veil that is before the testimony, Aaron and his son shall tend to it evening and morning before the Lord. It shall be a statute forever to be observed throughout their generations by the people of Israel. Here we get instructions. It says, make sure all of you give toward having oil to go in the lamp that's going to stand in the tent of meeting. And this lamp is going to be outside of the holy place, but there, there for the people to see. And one of the jobs of the priest was to tend to the lampstand night and day to make sure it stayed lit. This was to be a statute forever throughout all generations. God really cares a lot about this lamp staying lit. Why? Because the light stood for his presence. Think about it. If you want to know someone's home or you want to know if a business is open, you check to see if the lights are on. When y'all go away on vacation, you want people to think you're home so nobody robs your house, so you leave some lights on, right? God is building his house, and friends, he's left a light on for you. He is reminding us that he is ever-present. He's not going anywhere. He's dwelling with his people day and night. God is communicating and having the priest keep the light on night and day, day and night, to tell us that he is always with us. God desires to have fellowship without ceasing, fellowship that never stops. One of the last promises Jesus gave to his people before he ascended is, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. If you think God is building a house and not inviting you to dwell in it, let the light be a reminder. You can come home. He's saying, welcome home. He doesn't just have the light on. He's got one of those cute little welcome signs that y'all have outside, right? Welcome to his house. The door is wide open. But just like the courtyard and just like the tent of meeting, there is only one door. There is no back door. You cannot climb 
over the wall. God has built one door to have fellowship and relationship with him, and his name is Jesus. Jesus came into the world to live a sinless life, to die as a substitute for our place, and to rise again on the third day. And this same Jesus said this in John chapter 10, verse 9. He says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Then he says this, the thief comes only to kill and destroy. I come that they might have life and have it abundantly. Friends, there is one door into the courtyard, into the holy place, and into the most holy place. There is one door into, the fellowship, with, into fellowship with God, and it isn't on the back of your granddaddy's faith. It isn't through endless cycles of works and ritual. Friends, it isn't through just discovering more of yourself and through a journey of, authentic, of authenticity and self-searching and self-expression. It isn't a journey within. No, the gate is Jesus Christ. And life is found in fellowship with God by entering the door and living in the light of his presence and grace. Friends, God has built a house for us bigger and better than the tabernacle. And the way into fellowship with God, into living in the house of God, is through sacrifice offered through Jesus, now without separation because Jesus has torn down the wall, and it's unceasing for those who enter in. Because of the work of Jesus, you can walk into the gates of heaven because the King of heaven says you're with him if you've placed your faith in the finished work of Jesus. But would you say that you have fellowship with God. I'm going to use an old preacherism that I think is good and wise, and it's a convicting question. Have you ever heard this? He says, does your heavenly father have full custody or only weekend visitation? I don't know if you all have ever heard that before, right? Do you have a life with God? Do you dwell with him in his word, seek him in prayer regularly, and seek to live with your brothers and sisters in Christ, in church, and in groups? Friends, God wants more than an hour of your week. And God's able to give you so much more than a spiritual high for one hour on a Sunday. Today, you can take the step of faith and commit your life to Jesus. You can do that right now. You can pray where you are. I'll be down front during this next little time of music and reflection and response. And you can come forward and commit your life to Jesus. But for many of us, it's been far too long because we're holidays and weekends, and we only want an occasional relationship with our Heavenly Father. I'd ask you to consider and pursue a daily life of dependence of, for the one who loves you and redeemed you. God wants our life and our all and our all, and in exchange, he will give us what our souls have always longed for. See this from the psalmist, Psalm 16, verse 11. You make known to me the path of life, and in your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hands are pleasures forevermore. May we enter God's presence and find him to be our all in all. Let's stand, let's pray together, and let's seek the God who's made us, loved us, redeemed us, and opened a pathway to life in him. Let's enter the gate together. Let's pray. 
Father in heaven, we are thankful that you desire life with us. You don't just desire to know us a little, but Lord, you desire to have an, a fellowship, a deep abiding relationship with us, so much so that you left the light on in your house to communicate that you're there and that we can come and pursue you. And he didn't just leave it on there in the tabernacle, but you said that you are the light of the world and you communicate to us that you're ready to save us and to meet us right where we are. Today I pray that if there's anybody here who does not know you, love you, pursue you, and call you their Savior and their Lord, that Lord, you'd convict them today that they would come through the door turning from their sin in themselves and find joy and life and forgiveness and freedom from a guilty conscience in Jesus. And I pray for those of us who are followers of you, that we would not be content with weekend visitation, but that we would rather pursue you wholeheartedly in relationship by your spirit in fullness of life and joy. And we ask and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I see the King of glory coming on the clouds with fire. The whole earth shakes, the whole earth shakes. Yeah. I see His love and Washing over all our sin, the people sing, the people sing, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, Hosanna. Jose 
for just a moment. Hosanna means Savior. And our Savior has come and he's made a way that all may enter into his presence. But God has put it on us to invite them in, to share with them the message of this Savior and what he's done through his death on the cross and his victorious resurrection from the dead. And we have a team heading to central Kentucky this week to share that message. So I want to invite those that are going on the trip, adults, students, everybody, come on up, and we want to pray over you as you go on. They're waiting for Sean to move first. There we go. There we go. That's right. Waiting for their fearless leader to come on up. And then I just want you, wherever you are, to extend your hands out. You can even come up if you feel comfortable. They're not going to bite. And we'll pray over you all and send you out. And we'll send you all out uh, with, the, with the good news and with our blessing and with God's power this week. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have made the door to heaven open, that any may enter in, but they must enter through repentance and faith in Jesus. And so today, as this team prepares to go this week to serve, to be your hands and feet, to love those around them and to share the gospel message, give them boldness, give them grace, give them help and be with them and let them know that you are surely with them always, even to the end of the age. Give them safe travels and just may they feel your hand upon them this week. And we ask and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.